Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr. Siska Nates of Hertford College, University of Oxford. Her paper was entitled Continental Influences on Confederate Warfare, 1641-1649. When the Irish Rebellion of 1641 transformed from its chaotic beginnings into a conflict that was more readily, uh, could more readily be recognised as war, the members of the Confederation of Kilkenny, who were in charge of ensuring continued resistance, explicitly looked towards the continent for inspiration on how to organise their war efforts. The last experience with all-out war the Irish had had went back to Tyrone's rebellion of the late 16th century, during which which the Irish had already implemented uh, some of the uh, characteristics um, of warfare common in uh, Europe. Nevertheless, at that time, their Spanish allies had dismissed the Irish style of warfare, saying that, and I quote, the Irish needed veteran soldiers to teach them how to form squadrons as they were not used to this war tactic, nor to the rest of those things which are so common in the military world, end of quote. Geoffrey Parker, one of the leading historians of the 16th and 17th century um, warfare, considered Ireland, even in the 1640s, one of the areas in Europe where the old ways of warfare still dominated, though he admitted that the Irish made substantial progress in implementing a more modern um, approach to war. Ronald Hutton and Wiley Reeves even claimed that the only novelty in the civil wars consisted of the introduction to the British Isles of practices already familiar abroad and that the few attempts to produce genuinely original solutions to specific problems almost all ended in failure. Contemporaries and historians shared the belief that adopting a different style of combat, in other words, one more closely resembling uh, European warfare, was indispensable to see the Irish grievances redressed saying that the return of veterans from service on the continent completely changed the nature of warfare in Ireland. Now, today's paper, which, as Emma mentioned, is based on my doctoral research, will discuss how continental military practices impacted uh, warfare in Ireland. Uh, from the moment the veterans returned from service in Europe over the course of 1642 until the arrival of Oliver Cromwell's new model army in the summer of 1649. Um, because of the time limit, um, I'm aware that I'm, I'll be talking fairly general terms, but I'm more than happy to go into detail um, later. Um, I will discuss the style of warfare Irish soldiers fighting in European armies, particularly in the Spanish <laughs> Army of Flanders, uh, came in contact with. Uh, what elements of this European style was, um, were vis- visible in Ireland during the 1640s, and what constituted the veterans' importance in Confederate strategies? Now, historiography of early modern warfare, much like official sources at the time, has paid much attention to set-piece engagements between standing forces equipped with handheld firearms, supported by artillery pieces, etc. In the second half of the 20th century, such emphasis has led to the idea that a military revolution took place in Western Europe. However, it appears that relying on sources emanating from central administrations has slightly skewed the narrative of early modern warfare. Increasingly, historians are emphasising the role played by what on the continent was known as petite guerre or Kleinkrieg or small war. 
Originating in the medieval light cavalry actions that devastated the enemy countryside, the Chevauchés, small war played an increasingly large role even in what is often regarded as the heartland of the military revolution, Spanish Flanders. Contemporary sources describe such actions as an unwelcome byproduct of war perpetrated by rogue troops. Yet, as Simon Pepper has already suggested in 2010, this small war was often deliberate. In the context, however, of growing awareness about legality of, and morality of combat, small war seems not to have attracted much acceptance amongst commanders. The Duke of Marlborough, for example, though slightly later than our period, uh, wrote that he found the whole business of small war deeply distasteful, declaring that he wished to fight like a general, not like a hussar. Despite the lack of systematic research on, um, on the matter, it seems that small war's conspicuous absence from contemporary reports, except from materials condemning enemy activity, um, indicates a, a form of contempt for this warfare. From that, it follows that the type of warfare most commonly identified in the debate about the military revolution constituted a conventional, a, an accepted form um, of warfare. As a result, the Irish Confederate interest in um, European warfare and their aim to build their own forces according to that European model should not come as too much of a surprise. Around 40,000 Irishmen had fought in the Spanish army of Flanders uh, since the late 16th century, and their contingent grew in, in importance until about the mid-1630s. The Spanish High Command not only awarded the Irish ever greater freedom in commanding their own units, but also entrusted them with increasingly important governorships. This exposed Irish soldiers to tactics and technologies most commonly deployed in the Low Countries wars, but left them only passively involved with the logistics of it. Yet how successfully did the Irish Confederates manage to replicate European conventional warfare in Ireland during the 1640s? Two aspects need to be evaluated in order to measure the impact of continental military practices on Confederate combat. The way in which the Confederates modelled their units on the European example, in other words, their, or the organisation of the troops, and how well they managed to replicate the tactics of it. So the first of, it, of these, the organisation, has attracted much attention, particularly in contemporary writings. The fear of the Lord's justices upon the outbreak of the rebellion that all the mere Irish now in the service of the King of Spain will undoubtedly return hither to join with the rebels was justified. The Irish Confederation, and even before the formal establishment of the Confederation, they explicitly petitioned foreign princes to allow, allow Irish officers and soldiers to return to Ireland. Among them were not only those commanding units in the Low Countries and who would go on to become um, very well-known officers in Ireland, um, men like Owen O'Neill and Thomas Preston, but also men serving in the Spanish armies in Portugal and Catalonia. At the time unrest broke out in Ireland in late 1641, the numbers of Irish serving in Flanders had diminished substantially compared to five years previously, when four Irish regiments had been in existence. By 1641, only the regiments of Owen O'Neill and Thomas Preston remained in the Low Countries, while those of the Earls of Tyrone and Tyrconnell had been transferred to Spain. Tracking these men from the continent to Ireland is a difficult task, complicated uh, particularly by the lack of identifying information about the soldiers who served in the Low Countries. Um, 
However, using the 1641 depositions, uh, the witness statements which were collected throughout the 1640s, does help to shed some light on the role played in Ireland by veterans of European wars. Of the 99 identifiable men who held a rank of captain or higher in one of the Irish regiments in Flanders, between 75 and 84 were named by Protestant witnesses as rebels, confederates, possible captains or generals amongst the Irish forces. Not only did the Spanish Council of State agree to let Irish soldiers leave their armies, though in many cases it must be said only grudgingly, so did its French counterpart. Irish soldiers left the continent from at least three French ports, Saint-Malo, Nantes and Bordeaux, and though not all of them had received an official discharge, the French were happy to turn a blind eye on their desertion. The officers of at least one recently disbanded Irish-French regiment left for Ireland at the end of 1641, and Irishmen also travelled from Germany and even Moravia to assist their countrymen. Though evidence is patchy, it appears likely that those returning from Europe immediately took up higher offices than the ones they had held on the continent. This was, for example, the case for Dennis Lawler, who had never risen higher than a captaincy in Spanish Flanders, but was promptly promoted to lieutenant colonel upon his arrival in Kilkenny in the autumn of 1642. Yet it is important to note that these men who returned from the continent did not make up the bulk of the Irish troops fighting in Ireland. When Owen Rowan Neill received the command over the Ulster forces, for example, he mixed together the men who he had brought with him from Flanders with those who had served, um, who had started the rebellion um, in October 1641. Other elements of the formal organisation of the Confederate troops over the summer of 1642 were hindered by logistical constraints. An assembly at Kilkenny in June 1642 decided that one horseman ought to be raised for each eight foot soldiers, which is quite a low ratio compared to the one in in Spanish Flanders. There, at the start of the 16th century, um, um, at the start of the 17th century, during the Battle of Newport, for example, the ratio was one cavalryman for each five foot soldiers. <coughs> and by the time of the Battle of Rocroi in 1643, at which the Spanish Army of Flanders was crushingly defeated by the French forces, the ratio stood at in between one in two and one in one. However, Ireland had always had problems with cavalry. The horses available in Ireland were not quite large enough to serve um, in a cavalry attack, quite like the ones on the continent. Their smaller size actually made them much more suitable for raids and skirmishes, or in other words, small war actions. At the same meeting in Kilkenny, it was also stipulated that one half of the Irish infantry ought to consist of pikemen, while the other half would carry firearms. By comparison, the ratio of pike to shot favoured on the continent at the time was one pikeman for every two musketeers. Though this could have been a conscious strategic choice on the part of the Irish, it also appears likely that the one-on-one ratio stemmed from logistical considerations. In 1647, at the Battle of Dungan's Hill, which was mentioned earlier, um, less than a quarter of Thomas Preston's nearly 8,000-strong army allegedly was armed with muskets, and another quarter went entirely unarmed. Now, the cause of this lack of firearms was twofold. On the one hand, the home industry lacked the natural resources needed to produce muskets and relied substantially on foreign-skilled artisans to produce them. 
On the other hand, the material support from Catholic princes on the continent on which the Irish Confederates heavily relied was patchy, not only because of a certain reluctance on the part of, for example, the King of Spain to aid rebels, which is a point I'll be coming back to later, but also because of practical difficulties of transporting military hardware overseas when the English Parliament controlled the navy. Thus, while Confederates could probably count on people with practical experience in fighting according to the style conventional in mainland Europe, they were hindered in equipping their soldiers with the tools required for that style of warfare. How effective, then, were the Confederate armies in replicating a European style of warfare? It is in this context important to think about the conventional types of warfare that is emphasised in contemporary writings as well as in the military revolution debate and the less conventional forms of combat that tend to be left out. When Geoffrey Parker and Rolf Luber assessed the extent to which Ireland witnessed the implementation of a military revolution during the 1640s in an essay of 1995, they focused primarily on the deployment of modern technologies such as firearms, artillery, artillery fortifications, etc. They saw a large role for the returned veterans. Within a few months um, after their arrival, they wrote, several relatively well-equipped armies trained and commanded by professionals with continental experience, clearly outclassed the English forces ranged against them. While it is undeniable that Irish forces collected successes that are remarkably reminiscent of continental endeavours, there are a few things that ought to be held in mind. Firstly, while the organisation of the four provincial Confederate armies imitated unit structure from the continent, more often than not, the style of warfare they waged did not. Of course, the 1640s did see the Confederates involved in full-out sieges, like King John's Castle in 1642, Duncan in 1644, 45. The Irish also fought in set-piece encounters, which we discussed earlier. Yet for each and every one of these continental-like engagements or engagements that had um, certain characteristics of continental-like engagements, um, innumerable smaller actions took place carried out by smaller units detached from the main forces. Quite often, and even though the standing provincial armies um, were particularly weak uh, when it came to cavalry, these detachments consisted of horsemen. Reports of Irish parties of horse are omnipresent in the correspondence of the Lord Lieutenant James Butler, Marquis of Ormond. Whereas the Irish only won one encounter on a battlefield during the entire decade um, in 1646 at Ben Burb, when Owen Roe Ulster um, army defeated the Scottish army led by General Monroe, who incidentally was also a veteran from the Continental Wars, uh, the small war the Irish waged greatly annoyed their opponents. Moreover, and very significantly in my opinion, the Earl of Castlehaven, who received command over the Confederate forces who were to campaign in Ulster in 1644, wrote the following in his memoirs about having to lead an expedition at the head of a main standing army. I also had this other consideration to discourage me, he wrote, that although our parties had commonly the better, yet our armies had commonly the worst. So in other words, the small war of Irish parties was far more successful in Castlehaven's opinion than the grand war, if you will, um, their armies attempted. Secondly, we, almost, we must also bear in mind that those encounter, encounters which bore the closest resemblance to continental-style combat were not always carried out by the same forces. 
Liz Carroll, for example, was fought by the Munster army. A battle of Clannes, also 1642, was um, fought by the Ulster troops under Owner O'Neill's command. Dungan's Hill, conversely, was fought by the Leinster army under command of Thomas Preston. Now, the sources strongly suggest that the Confederates and their military leaders struggled to consistently wage war according to the European conventions. Now, this problem originated in their logistical organization, which, as mentioned earlier, uh, depended heavily on support from friendly Catholic nations. Financial support, which would enable the Confederates uh, or would facilitate the Confederates to keep troops permanently in the field, was notoriously hard to transmit to Ireland from the continent. However, successes for the Irish usually came at times of relatively plentiful supplies, which indicates the importance of logistics for the implementation of continental tactical conventions. So we could state that the Irish Confederates were most definitely capable of replicating the European style of warfare, given that the circumstances were right. However, as the statement from the Earl of Castlehaven implies, in general it was the small war of parties and detachments of troops that kept their English and Scottish opponents at bay. We could wonder, therefore, why the Confederates were, key, were as keen as they were to fight according to a style of war that was both ineffective and nearly impossible for them to keep up. It is in this context, in my opinion, that we find the true importance of the veteran soldiers returning from the continent. As the name that is most commonly used to describe this conflict, the 1641 Rebellion, implies what the Irish themselves saw as a legitimate rising was among their opponents considered a rebellion. This interpretation has a lot of implications for the political side of the conflict. From fairly early on, the Irish attempted to justify their actions as legitimate by claiming that they did not intend to attack the king. The Irish who left the European armies were quite keen to emphasise this as well. Now, um, the following situation is described by the English resident, resident in Brussels, Henry de Vick, um, in, 16, in, 1640, in January 1642. Um, and a certain Colonel Plunkett, who unfortunately I have not been able to identify, asked the Vick what he, de Vick, would have a cavalier do that had no means to subsist according to his quality. De Vick told him anything rather than to be a rebel, it being no crime to be poor, but the basest and gravest in the world to, for to be a traitor. Plunkett took a deep oath he would never bear army, arms against his majesty, neither did he think that his country had any purpose in what they did to go against his majesty's service. The Vic replied that he knew not what were their intentions, but he was sure their actions were treacherous. Yet the con Confederate actions did not always confirm what they claimed in writing and by words. Establishing a general assembly, for example, looked a remarkable lot like calling a parliament, which was um, a prerogative which lay with the king. So the public image of the Irish Confederation was of some importance. Not only would it influence the willingness of the king and his representatives to negotiate about the Irish grievances, but a good public image might convince Catholic nations on the continent to provide the support the Irish needed. War in Ireland was just as public an affair as it was on mainland Europe, even if the volume of printed materials um, circulating was far smaller. With the continent setting the standard for what was acceptable in war, types of combat generally associated with rebellious activities such as raids and other small war activities ought to be avoided if the Confederates wished to be taken seriously. 
the presence of veterans of the European wars who had served in the armies of those princes the Irish solicited aid from suggested a willingness on the part of them, the Confederates, to adhere to the accepted standards of warfare. This willingness is also obvious from their attempts to exchange or ransom military prisoners, which had been completely absent from the very early stages of the rebellion. It seems to me that, apart from settling dynastic and other disputes, war also played a representative role that is often absent from debate about military change. It seems that the choice for one type of warfare over another was determined by measuring cost against gain, and both terms should not only be interpreted in the strictly financial or economic sense. From the Irish case, it appears that political cost or gain played a crucial role. Hence, desperate for political credibility and recognition of their grievances as legitimate, waging what was generally considered the right type of warfare was worth more in the eyes of the Confederation than the financial investment it would require. Now, however enlightening it has been to study the influence of the continent on Irish warfare, further research on the relationship between tactical choices and political credit in different political settings and in, at other time frames seems to be in order. Such investigation potentially has great bearings on our understanding of what caused warfare to change so significantly in late medieval and early modern Europe. Researching this relationship using a more integrated interpretation of warfare, in other words, taking on board non-conventional types of warfare, um, which contemporaries called small war, might actually reveal another meaning <coughs> for Charles Tilly's famous statement that war made the state. Thank you.